Chapter 14 of House, Garden, and Field by L. C. Meal. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Rock Barnacle. The life of a rock strewn sea beach is a world in itself, and I would no more attempt to describe it in one short chapter than I would attempt to describe the land animals of an English countryside. But a single visit to the seashore, like a single excursion through the fields, may be profitable if we resist the temptation to examine everything that we come across, and fix our attention upon some few objects. What can we reasonably attempt in a single morning's ramble, and a single afternoon's boating party, which are all that we can now command? The rocky beach before us, with its countless boulders and pools, abounds in living things to a degree that only the experienced shore collector can appreciate. Though many of the free-swimming animals went down with the receding tide, and are now seeking their food in the groves of sea-tangle below low-water mark, a multitude of others have stayed behind to wait for the return of the tide. Some of them, like the sea anemones, the limpets and the barnacles, lie exposed on the bare rocks or on the tufts of brown seaweed. Some trust to the protection of a few inches of sea-water, many have squeezed themselves up or sunk into the sand, or crept into a narrow cleft, or closed some protective shell which they possess, and the untrained eye fails to discover them among the blotches of color due to rock weathering or the tufts of marine vegetation. One of the few creatures that move about freely is the shore crab, and at a little distance he too becomes invisible, so nearly does his olive-green shell resemble the dark seaweeds. It is with some surprise that the young naturalist hears his elders remark that of all tracts on the habitable globe, none so swarms with life as the beach a little above and a little below low water. Our time will be frittered away if we glance perpetually from one thing to another. We will not load our memories with names, nor with brief descriptions hardly more profitable than mere names. Let us pitch upon some one thing and consider it attentively. If local abundance may decide our choice, we can hardly find anything better than the little barnacles which stud the rocks with their dirty white shells in such numbers that they often form a gray or yellowish band which can be seen a mile or two away. The common rock barnacle of the north of England is a rather small species, less than half an inch in diameter at the base, which is the widest part. On our southern coast this species is replaced by others of the same general appearance, but differing slightly in details. There are much larger species than these, and many of us have seen a pink or purple barnacle as big as a walnut, which is often found in large quantities on the bottoms of ships arriving from tropical ports. Rock barnacles commonly adhere so firmly to their support that they can hardly be removed without fracture. They are glued fast by a calcareous substance almost as hard as the shell itself. In our northern rock barnacle, the sides of the conical shell are divided into six ridges by narrow sunk spaces, and every ridge is marked by several radiating ribs, but the surface pattern is often obscured by wear or corrosion. At the summit of the cone is a hole closed by two pairs of close-fitting valves, which can be raised or lowered a little, or parted to allow the entrance of water and the protrusion of parts of the body. If live rock barnacles are placed in seawater and watched with a lens, the valves will be seen to gape at very frequent intervals. The slit between them enlarges to an oval, and then a kind of hand with six fingers on each side is protruded for a moment. The hand is really the middle part of the body, that part which in a crayfish bears the walking legs, and the fingers are legs, which get longer and longer backwards. Each leg ends in a pair of slender, jointed, curled, bristle-bearing filaments. 
At the moment when the valves are parted, the hand is extended and the filaments uncurl. Then they bend altogether towards the mouth and disappear beneath the valves. By the continual repetition of this action, minute floating particles are drawn into the gullet. The conical shell with its six outer plates and its four valves is firmly attached to the body of the barnacle as well as cemented to the rock. It is at first very small and enlarges steadily as the animal within grows. The growth of its rigid shell presents no great difficulty to a mollusk, for there is always a free margin to which additions can be made, nor is the difficulty insuperable to any free crustacean which can change its shell periodically. But how does the barnacle manage? The only free margin to the outer shell is at the apex of the cone. An addition of new substance here, while not materially increasing the cavity, would quickly close the aperture on which both nutrition and respiration depend. The shell is never cast. A soft-bodied barnacle, deprived of its external armor, might dry up or be dislodged by breakers or devoured by other animals. Somewhat similar difficulties beset an echinus within its globular calcareous shell. The box must grow and retain its original shape without being parted with for a moment. An echinus shell is composed of a mosaic of small pieces, which, tightly as they are compacted together, have free borders. By additions to these borders, the shell increases steadily, preserving all the time its original shape. The shell of the rock barnacle is fixed beneath, which complicates the problem still more, and it has in most cases no visible sutures, but sutures there are, however concealed. Darwin found that many rock barnacle shells fall to pieces when boiled in caustic potash, separating along the sunk lines which are externally visible. Each of the strong ridges grows by the continual addition of fine laminae to its base. Since the shell remains fixed all the time, this mode of growth would probably be impossible if the shell were a dead, structureless deposit. It is not really such, for its substance is traversed by innumerable cavities which lodge living tissue, and its growth is similar to that of tooth or bone, growth and replacement going on together. Another kind of barnacle is often found attached to objects which have long floated in the sea, such as the timbers of a wreck or corks torn off from a fisherman's net. This second kind of barnacle has a stalk, and at the end of the stalk is what we should at first sight call a head, though it is nothing of the sort, which is defended by five calcareous plates. If a stalked barnacle is broken open, we find inside the shell a headless animal with six pairs of legs, each ending in two lashes, which are jointed and fringed like that of a rock barnacle. Unlike as they are on superficial examination, the two kinds of barnacle are evidently closely allied, and we do well to give them a common name. But they must be distinguished from one another, and the names of stalked and sessile barnacles are in common use. The sessile barnacle is what we have hitherto called the rock barnacle. It is also called the acorn barnacle. To what division of animals do the barnacles belong? Any young student of the 20th century who had received a few lessons in systematic zoology would reply at once that having jointed limbs they must be referred to the arthropods, and further that their aquatic habitat places them in that division of arthropods which is known as the class Crustacea. Our young student, relying on the definitions of the books, would be quite right, little credit to him. Other naturalists have cleared the way, and his task is no harder than that of looking out words in a dictionary. But before good textbooks or definitions existed, it was not easy to say where the barnacles ought to be placed. Linnaeus put them among the mollusks, and many years later the great Cuvier, 
who by his own labors had greatly extended the knowledge of mollusks, as of many other groups of animals, made the same mistake. Barnacles, he said, have external calcareous shells, like bivalve mollusks, and the body is not segmented as in crustaceans. It is true, he goes on to say, that the barnacles have jointed limbs, very much like those of crustaceans, a mouth provided with lateral jaws, and a chain of nervous ganglia, but the pterido or shipworm, which is certainly a bivalve mollusk, has jointed limbs too. This is a strange mistake of Cuvier's. On the whole, he decided to leave the barnacles among the mollusks, acknowledging at the same time that they lead up to the crustaceans, and not at all blaming those who rank them as such. Cuvier's authority was decisive in his own day, and until 1830 the barnacles were regarded without hesitation as a very peculiar and aberrant sort of mollusks. In that year, shortly before the death of the great naturalist, Cuvier's interpretation of the zoological position of the barnacles was upset by the publication of quite unexpected facts. An army surgeon named Vaughn Thompson, who was stationed at Cork, had long seized every opportunity of studying the natural objects which came in his way. On April 28, 1823, after a fruitless expedition to the seashore in search of new forms of life, he chanced to throw out a small muslin net while crossing the ferry at Passage, and made a haul of many curious crustaceans. Among these was one which he described as a small, translucent animal, one-tenth of an inch long, of somewhat elliptical form, very slightly compressed laterally, and of a brownish tint. When at rest, it resembled a very small mussel, and lay on its side at the bottom of a vessel of seawater, with all its limbs withdrawn. Its shell consisted of two valves, hinged together along the back, and capable of opening for the protrusion of the legs. At the fore end of the body was a large and stout pair of limbs, provided with cup-like suckers for attachment. At the hinder end were six pairs of legs, furnished with long bristles, which moved all together, and by their sudden strokes impelled the animal forward in a succession of jerks like a water flea. The tail was short and bent under the body. Through the shell a pair of black eyes could be distinctly seen. It was not till 1826 that Thompson discovered what this new animal really was. On May 1st of that year he collected specimens and put them into a shallow vessel of seawater. A week later he found that two of them had cast their skin and were now firmly adhering to the bottom of the vessel. Great was his surprise to find that these adhering forms were young barnacles with conical shells of six ridges, four valves, and protruded legs. Other individuals were seen in the act of casting their bivalve shells and attaching themselves to the bottom. The earlier stage, which by a rapid transformation passes into a barnacle, bears all the marks of an ordinary crustacean, and even its bivalve shell is very like that of a water flea. Thompson had now no difficulty in drawing two conclusions. The barnacles are true crustaceans, and they undergo an extraordinary transformation. Some further account of the naturalist who first unraveled the life history of the rock barnacle will, I think, be of interest to my readers, especially as his name is still unknown, except to professed zoologists. One proof of this is that he was not included in the first list of Englishmen deemed worthy of mention in the Dictionary of National Biography. Happily for the credit of the dictionary, and we may say even for the credit of Englishmen, the omission was repaired in time, and an excellent notice by Dr. F. W. Gamble tells the story of a naturalist who will be remembered when a thousand celebrities of his own day are forgotten. 
John Vaughan Thompson, 1779-1847, was an army surgeon who served his country during the Great French War, being stationed by turns in the West Indies, Madagascar, and the Mauritius. After the peace, he was transferred to Cork, where his most notable zoological work was done and published. His last years, occupied chiefly with medical duties, were spent in Sydney, where he died. Thompson has written his name indelibly in the history of zoology by the following capital discoveries. 1. The development of the land crab of the West Indies and the proof that the spawning and early development take place in the sea. 2. The pentachronous stage of the feather star, Antidon. 3. The life history of the shore crab and the proof that this, like others of the higher crustacea, undergoes a remarkable transformation. 4. The life history of the stalked and sessile barnacles. 5. The recognition of the animals, which he called polyzoa, and which are now regarded as one of the primary divisions of the animal kingdom. These discoveries were made known by a little collection of pamphlets entitled Zoological Researches, and two short papers in the Philosophical Transactions. Other of Thompson's writings on the natural history of various animals and plants appeared in scientific journals, and some of his papers were translated into French. But hardly any contemporary naturalist realized that these unpretending publications included some of the best and most anticipatory zoological work of that generation, or that Vaughan Thompson would afterwards take a foremost place among the zoologists who intervene between Cuvier and Darwin. To this underestimate of his work, a number of deficiencies, sometimes provoking but rarely important, contributed. Thompson's zoological researches, apparently printed at his own expense, were issued from a remote provincial press. The exposition is brief and hurried. The writing has no grace of expression. Small slips abound, which betray the unpracticed author. The plates, engraved by the naturalist's own hand, though careful, are wanting in style. In fact, the researches are just what we might expect from an army surgeon, living far from libraries and museums, and bent solely on communicating, without any parade, what he believes to be solid and important additions to knowledge. Few indeed were those who could overlook the superficial defects of these memoirs, and recognize the soundness and lasting value of the discoveries which they revealed. It is one proof of the scanty recognition which Thompson's work met with in his own lifetime that he was never elected into the Royal Society, and that his memorable contributions to the philosophical transactions had to be communicated by Sir Somebody Somebody. In those days, admission to the Royal Society was easily got by men of wealth, distinguished by that landed manner, which Adam Sedgwick remarked among the early fellows of the Geological Society. It could be got by scientific attainments also, if they were acknowledged by the world, but Thompson's merits found no judges at once competent and influential. The year of his death, 1847, was the very year in which admission to the Royal Society was regulated by a new system, which gave for the first time due weight to scientific merit. Neither in 1826, when Thompson's observations on the transformation of the rock barnacle were made, nor in 1830, when they were first published, was any other zoologist aware of the singular transformation of the rock barnacle, or of the proof which it afforded that Cuvier's views as to the nature of barnacles were demonstrably unsound. In 1834, Burmeister published observations which placed it beyond doubt that stalked barnacles also hatch out as free-swimming larvae, which after a time settle down and become enclosed in a fixed shell. Burmeister added the interesting fact 
that the stalked barnacle has two larval stages, only the second of which is provided with a bivalve shell. Thompson continued to prosecute his own researches, and in 1835, a year after Burmeister, he published his own account of the transformation of the stalked barnacle. Two ships coming into Cork Harbor, one from the Mediterranean, the other from North America, brought on their bottoms innumerable stalked barnacles. Thompson got a large supply and kept them alive in seawater till they emitted prodigious numbers of larvae, not at all the same as those which had been seen to change into rock barnacles, and easily distinguished by the total absence of the bivalve shell. Thompson published his observations in complete ignorance of Burmeister's discoveries. It was necessary to put the results of the two naturalists together in order to attain the complete life history, and this can now be readily done. Thompson had described the last larval stage of the rock barnacle and the first larval stage of the stalked barnacle. Burmeister had described both stages of the stalked barnacle. Has the rock barnacle as well as the stalked barnacle a first larval stage, differing from that which undergoes the transformation? Thompson never put or answered this question, but it was not long before Harry Goodsir, at Edinburgh in 1843, discovered that the rock barnacle has an earlier stage quite distinct from the late larva with bivalve shell. I have not yet finished the story of barnacle development, but we will break off here and wait for an opportunity of examining fresh larvae of the barnacles. This bright April afternoon is capital for toe-netting. There is so little wind that we have often to put out the oars in order to keep the net extended. Sometimes we are content to lie motionless for half an hour together, and then all is still except for the chuckling of little waves which leap up against the sides of the boat. The water is absolutely clear, such water as we only get on our western shores, and looking over the side I can see groves of seaweed and corallines, with here and there a sea urchin, a starfish, or a sea slug. A large fish sculls himself gently in and out of the weedy recesses, and crabs clamber over the rocks. Now and then I pull in the tow net, turn its long cone of muslin inside out, and wash it in a beaker of seawater. The tow net has a long cone of muslin attached to its hoop, and this is held by a cord. After being towed for some time by a slow-moving boat, the net is hauled in and its contents examined. It is a good plan now and then to send to the marine laboratory at Plymouth for a supply of what is called plankton, an assemblage of minute life from the surface of the sea. A bottle will be received containing nopoli, crab larvae, medusae of abelia, the worm surgida, and many more pelagic animals. Early summer is a good season for these things. There are many small creatures which move slowly by the gentle contraction of glassy bells, others which travel slowly through the water without any means of propulsion that the naked eye or a hand lens can reveal. Again, we are warned not to run the risk of distraction. Even to name all the living objects that the eye can recognize in one of these beakers would be a waste, not so much of time, for time is cheap on an idle afternoon, but of attention, which is soon exhausted and not easily repaired. We will remark one thing only, and I have my reasons for choosing these little white specks, just visible to the naked eye, which make short, jerky leaps in rapid succession. With a dipping tube it is easy to pick up a few and transfer them to a watch-glass set on a strip of black paper. Then a good pocket lens will show us what they are. We can make out an oval body, narrowing behind to a point, and three rather long pairs of limbs fringed with bristles. 
a microscope is needed to make out the details shown in the accompanying figure. Remark the horns which project from the sides of the head region. The eye, apparently single, but really consisting of two eyes set close together, and the jointed limbs, the two hinder being forked. Even a beginner in zoology, if he should happen to know his crayfish, will recognize this as a crustacean. The forked and jointed limbs are proof enough of that. A zoologist of somewhat wider knowledge will say at once that it is a crustacean in its first or nauplius stage. Nauplius is an old name given to a cyclops larva by O. F. Mueller, and now retained to denote not a particular sort of animal, but a stage of crustacean development. Zoologists who happen to have attended to the crustacea will go further and pronounce that this is the nauplius of a rock barnacle. It is an early locomotive larva, destined, if lucky enough to escape the thousand risks that await it, to settle down on a tidal shore and change into a rock barnacle, such as any one of the multitude that we glanced at this morning. All through the winter and spring, the nauplius of the rock barnacle abounds in the surface waters of the sea, and some kinds may be found at any time of the year. If a boat and tonette cannot be had, nauplii may be procured by placing in a bowl of water a stone well covered with living barnacles. After a few hours, nauplii will be emitted, though in no great numbers. This method succeeds best in the spring. The second larval stage, which was seen by Thompson changing to a rock barnacle, is most plentiful in May. This is called the cypress stage. From its resemblance to cypress, a well-known small crustacean with a bivalve shell. Barnacle larvae do not depend for transport entirely upon their own swimming power. The currents which are set up by wind and tide carry them along far more rapidly than their feeble exertions could possibly do. It would take Anopleus days to travel a single mile, even if it never ceased to propel itself in a straight line. But it need only keep itself near the surface of the sea to be drifted along a hundred or a thousand times as fast. It will now be convenient to recapitulate the life history of the barnacles and see how far Thompson and Burmeister had got. Balanus and Lapasse are the technical names of the rock barnacle and the stalked barnacle. Balanus, larva 1, Nauplius, larva 2, Cypris, T. Rock barnacle. Lepus, Nauplius, B. T. Cypris, B. Stalked barnacle. Thompson was acquainted only with the stages marked T, Burmeister with those marked B. Neither knew of the Nauplius stage of Balanus, which was recognized by Goodsir. The Nauplius stage of the stalked barnacle had been found and figured long before the time of Burmeister or Thompson by Martin Slabber, whose Naturkundige Verlustigingen, Recreations in Natural History, published at Harlem in 1778, is a collection of short illustrated monographs of nondescript animals, executed after the manner of Roselle von Rosenhoff's Insectenberlustigung, Nuremberg, 1746-55. Slabber relates that in November 1767, two countrymen brought him the bottom of a cask and an empty corked bottle, both of which had been cast up on the seashore the night before, and which were covered with stalked barnacles. When some of these were placed in seawater, they emitted clouds which rendered the water turbid. A magnifying glass showed that the clouds were composed of minute living bodies, one of which slobber figures as he saw it by the help of Cuff's microscope, and his representation is quite recognizable. Slabber had thus, without knowing it, discovered the very singular larva of the stalked barnacle. 
He calls it a sea louse, and thinks it may have been the food of the barnacle. We have not yet sufficiently described the cypress larva of the barnacle, and we must by no means pass over the transformation by which it is converted into a fixed barnacle. The cypress larva is furnished with a pair of new antennae, which shortly before, that is, in the late Nauplius, were to be seen telescoped into the forepart of the body, like the growing antennae in an insect larva shortly before pupation. It has three more pairs of legs than the Nauplius, bringing the number up to six. The bivalve shell is large enough to enclose the whole body, including the antennae, and can be closed by an adductor muscle, except at the ends, which always gape a little. The cypress larva swims rapidly, or creeps by the help of its prehensile antennae. The lowest joint, but one of the antenna, is furnished with a sucker, which adheres even to so smooth a surface as that of glass. The mouth of the cypress is closed, and no food can be taken in during this stage. When the cypress, swimming or creeping through the water and guided by its eyes and antennae, has discovered a spot convenient for its settlement, it applies its suckers and immediately adheres. A sticky fluid is poured out from the suckers at this moment or even earlier, for free larvae have been found with their suckers already charged with cement. The body is now parallel to the surface of attachment, in the position of a shrimp resting on the ground. The skin splits along the mid-dorsal line, and the bivalve shell, together with the compound eyes and other parts, which will henceforth be superfluous, are shed. Then the young barnacle bends its body into the position which it will hereafter retain. When it first became attached, the limbs rested upon the ground, but the body now erects itself until the animal stands upon its head. Just after erection, the young rock barnacle is very like a stalked barnacle in the same stage, and consists of an attached base formed by the head and antennae, a stalk, which for a short time is flexible, and an enlarged free end, which bears the jointed legs, and is defended by valves and plates. Provision is now made for the protection of the body by an outer case. A fold of skin is pushed out, which grows rapidly until it envelops the body on all sides. Hard plates, answering in a general way to the dorsal and ventral plates of a free-swimming crustacean, form upon this fold. They soon lose all traces of a serial arrangement and become disposed in an outer and an inner circle. The inner circle sinks within the outer one and constitutes the valves described above, whose free edges gape to allow the protrusion of the limbs. It is easy to see that the barnacles, whether stalked or sessile, derive important advantages from from the possession of early free-swimming stages. We might go further and say that they could not continue to exist without modal stages of some kind, for a ready mode of dispersal is indispensable to the due spacing of all animals which as adults are stationary. We learn from observation of the course of development of various animals that three conditions favor the production of special modal stages. These are, one, a sedentary life in the adult stage, two, heavy armor, and three, a marine, and especially a littoral, habitat. All three conditions are associated more or less intimately, and often cooperate to produce the same result. Sedentary life in the adult favors mobility in the larva, for if the adult cannot migrate, the young must do so. Heavy armor makes the adult more sedentary. Habitat, little as it seems to be related to modes of dispersal, is really closely connected therewith for the waters of the sea, which are continuous over vast areas and kept in circulation by wind currents, offer great facilities for early migration. Rivers are much less favorable, 
They are relatively small and isolated, and they end in the sea, which destroys at once nearly all kinds of freshwater animals which enter it. The crowded state of the shallow seas, which abound in animal life beyond any other part of the Earth's surface, favors early dispersal. Crowding brings competition and multiplies enemies, so that the risks to be faced by any species are intensified. Hence, a greater number of embryos have to be produced in order to keep up the number of the species. These numerous embryos cannot be subsisted directly or indirectly by the parent, and must therefore be turned out at once to shift for themselves. Their first necessity is dispersal, and hence the embryos of littoral animals are almost of necessity minute, provided with temporary locomotive organs, and quite unlike their parents in form as well as in size. Barnacles, like the majority of shore animals, are obliged to produce vast numbers of eggs on account of the risks which are to be run. The eggs are minute and ill-furnished with yolk. The issuing embryos are altogether unlike their parents and adapted to a life of free movement. The rock barnacle is a good example of development with transformation of the kind most usual among animals. The frog and the insect, though often chosen as examples because they are familiar to dwellers in inland places, are examples of an unusual kind. They do not migrate first and then settle down to feed, but acquire by a late transformation the power of migrating. In insects, the transformation is often nearly the last event in the life history. End of chapter 14